Hi, this is Mike Bullivant, and this is the 2022 London Fintech Podcast New Year Special, where I step back from the fray with a bonus episode out of the usual series to overview the important things of our time that will affect all segments of business. I look back fondly on the days when the New Year Special was a purely fintech event. Right now, as you may have noticed, there are one or two things going on way above the fintech level of supreme importance. Is globalism a death star aimed at the citizens of liberal democracies? Its construction and schematics is a super long episode as we live in perilous times and, as is my want, I feel that to understand today we need to understand yesterday and so I showcase various insights and ideas from prior generations. This episode is in effect part two of the 2021 Europe podcast entitled The Elites, Governance and Cultural Revolutions which featured the key elements as long foreshadowed by in particular Nietzsche in the 19th century, Spengler at the start of the 20th century, and Christopher Lash at the end of the 20th century. I originally intended following up this time on both the governance and cultural revolutions. The Death Star's death rays are aimed at eliminating both liberal democracy and national cultures which are intimately intertwined. However, there is simply too much ground to cover on governance, and besides, with respect to culture, I assume you have all seen plenty of, slash more than enough of, cultural destruction and replacement in your country by wokest one-size-fits-all. And if you are fortunate enough to live somewhere that hasn't had the wokest wave crash upon its shores, I hope it never comes your way, though I wouldn't bet against it. Rather, what I shall focus on in this episode is the design of what I am calling the Death Star, globalist governance, the major centralising, totalitarianising threat of our age. For the avoidance of doubt, by globalism I mean the system of undemocratic governance from above the nation-state, which has been ever increasing. I do not mean globalisation, which I use to refer to a system of international trade which has been a key part of the sustained rise in prosperity around the world over the past decades. This episode is intended to be educational rather than polemic. After a quick sit-rep, we will look at some theoreticians on the nature of power and totalitarianism. The latter especially, as many listeners won't have been alive when Mao and the USSR were unignorable, but also for those of us who were, for whom the striking parallels between the nature of totalitarianism, how many topics are approached these days, think climate as well as Covid. We will then move on to sketch the post-World War II deep origins of globalism and onto an excellent and stunningly clear organogram of globalism. And no, it's not on the secret forces that allegedly rule the world, just a far clearer summary of the so-called global public-private partnership. I will end with an important positive note. Ultimate power lies with the billions, even if in the short term the DeVos set are at all the levers. We shall overcome. How long it takes us to overcome will be a function of us all. The sum of a billion tiny actions amounts to a gigantic tsunami. Civilization, I believe, is at a crossroads. The globalist road has a stench that we can smell from the crossroads. Their dystopian future has long been designed by a complex network of NGOs and supranational institutions, and in essence private clubs of oligarchs. At a governance level, Covid is merely an accelerant on the direction of the super scary UN Agendas 21, signed in the 1990s in passing, and Agenda 2030. I won't be covering either Agenda 21 or Agenda 2030. There's plenty of high quality material out there. Suffice it to say, the bland Blairite words on the UN website Sustainability et al. disguise ideas of creating a future so dystopian 
that few science fiction writers can have imagined it. They will own everything, have all the power and they will be happy. We will be reduced to little more than farm animals in their eyes, banging the rocks together to create a spark when the lights keep going out as our dear leaders sprint towards net zero. I've changed my view this year on going back to the old normal as opposed to the oligarch's new normal. I used to think that going back to the old normal was a good idea. However, the increasingly tyrannical and draconian actions of major governments, and I'm not just talking about Covid here, but in information management that would have impressed Stalin, Mao, Hitler, in actions to stop protests, and in a brilliantly recursive fashion, stopping protests about changing the rules on stopping protests, but also in lethal laws in the UK which allow state agents to break any law they like. The globalists' almost complete Death Star has already destroyed nations' traditions and long-fought hard-won gains such as liberty and freedom. So yes, there are many elements of the old normal which are essential to revive freedom and liberty uppermost. Our ancestors fought for so long to bequeath those to us. We would betray not just them but our children and grandchildren if we were the generation that blew it. However, and this is the key to my change of thinking, we cannot roll the clock back knowing what we now know. To sketch a couple of pictures on a whiteboard, it would be like your house falling down and whilst you and others argue about quite why it fell down, would you wish to go back a few years when it was still standing, if the reason was that it collapsed due to woodworm and dry rot? You'd be going back to a situation where your house was about to collapse around your ears. Or, picking up the Star Wars metaphor, your nation, your planet, has been struck by deadly beams. Going back a few years merely takes you back to the period when, in a relatively low-key fashion, the Death Star was being assembled above your head. So, to me, there is no going back. In simple dualistic terms, we will either travel down the so-called Great Reset, more precisely the Global Oligarchs Reset path, or down the People's Reset path. Away from simple dualisms in quantum terms, the near future will end up being some quantum superposition of these states, with the wave function only collapsing to one path in several years' time when either the oligarchs or the people have won. The People's Reset, as opposed to simply stopping the Covid tyranny, is a huge undertaking as a. there are manifestly so many problems with the world right now which have mounted up due to pretty appalling standards of local, national and supranational governments and politicians in the past two decades in particular, b. we haven't exactly been working on this for decades ourselves, and c. as the cultural destruction already wreaked has already severed many people from their roots and persuaded them that their ancestors were roughly speaking, all bad. This last point is far more important than is commonly acknowledged. If we don't learn from history, what the bloody hell will we learn from? Fixing a world where culturally tradition and localism obliterated by one-size-fits-all wokeism, globalism's official religion, and economically, as Obama pointed out, trickle-down doesn't work. The system is designed to be a flood-up economy, and flood-up it is certainly doing. And as an example of, by design, Billionaires, apparently, tend to have tax bills in the 1-3% to range, an order of magnitude more below those of the 99.999%. What the People's Reset looks like, none of us know yet. But we'd better get on with pushing back against tyranny and designing a better future. Many people in so-called liberal democracies, if they decline an experimental injection with no long-term trials nor proper animal experimentation, are already experiencing Orwell's vision of the future, a boot stamping on a human face forever. And we should note up front, as we will not have time to dive into the corporate world, one category of supranationals are, of course, the megacos. So, just looking at 
my Twitter stream today, I see that Quebec will find anyone who doesn't get injected, and Jamie Dimon said that JP Morgan would not pay the so-called unvaccinated. I suspect he means those without the mRNA injection, as most people are chocker with various vaccines from childhood and beyond. So it doesn't matter at one level whether the boot on your face is a state boot or a corporate boot. Increasingly, as in Nazi Germany, there is little difference. They both enforce the latest woke edict. And in passing, both Canada and England, one of the basic common law principles is that coercion is verboten, let alone having to refer to more recent matters such as the Nuremberg Code. Despite all the negativity, both from those who are in fear of a virus and those who are in fear of their governments, I conclude with grounded optimism as, to quote the six times 19th century Prime Minister Gladstone, the resources of civilization are not yet exhausted. Overall, however, to put it mildly, we, and we right now is huge chunks of the world, have a major governance crisis on our hands. National liberal democracy, human rights, the Nuremberg Code line tatters, replaced by a mixture of coordinated governance from above the national level, level mixed with tyranny, fear-mongering, and huge dollops of corruption and utter incompetence throughout. I will not focus in this episode on the current fiasco around COVID. Everyone by now has pretty firm opinions, although the passage of time is moving people in one direction and one direction only, towards more suspicion of the state, big pharma, and the real motives. This is not about a virus, it's a pass-in position, especially with a virus doing what viruses usually do, a mutating in a weakening direction. And it weakens as the UK's government, government's own data and the CDC's own data has always showed from a position of originally having been on par with a pretty poor flu season, but no worse. Data from VAERS, the US Vaccine Adverse Event System, have shown for some time that it, a so-called vaccine, and it's called a vaccine simply to get emergency authorization, they could not have done it otherwise, has killed more people and caused more side effects than all other vaccines put together over the past 30 years. The risk-benefit ratio is particularly catastrophic in the young. Low hundreds of superfit athletes have had heart attacks slash died, and myocarditis is super elevated in young men as a whole. And also dysmenorrhea in women has been reported, for example by ultra-Orthodox Jews in New York, who are no longer taking the so-called vaccine, in about one in five women. Current data shows a negative effectiveness of the vaccine in many reports, and its widespread use is, I believe, a crime against humanity, as Dr. Mike Yeadon, former VP of Respiratory Viruses at Pfizer, has submitted, along with others, to the International Criminal Court. Let us not forget, talking of Pfizer, they paid the largest criminal fine ever of $2.3 billion. Nor is Yeadon alone. Rainer Fulamick, that slayer of dragons who has won major cases such as in the emissions scandal at VW and against Deutsche Bank, has amassed a huge range of data and key interviews and is looking for something approximating a new Nuremberg trial. There are three reasons for moving on from COVID, however. First, you and I are no doubt bored of hearing about it, and opinions differ wildly. Most families will have family members taking most positions. It matters not a jot if you have a completely different analysis from mine about COVID. This episode isn't about it. Second, the official narrative is crumbling rapidly at the start of 2022. Third, even if I could wave a magic wand and make COVID and government's legislative responses disappear overnight, we would still be left with a hell of a governance problem. Furthermore, I'm reminded of the stats that if a man hits his partner once, he's highly likely to keep doing it. A taboo has been broken, a boundary crossed. If governments can mandate you to have a jab, which for most people has a risk far, or for the young far, far higher, 
and that's based on the short-term data, we naturally don't know the long-term risk, then that from the virus, then there's literally no limit to what the state will do. Power is a narcotic, and the grinning faces on our TVs of politicians from around the world clearly relishing their roles are devilish in their animation. To those who live through the crisis, and let us pray, religious or not, that the longer-term health potential concerns from the injection do not come to pass. Perhaps the longer-term impacts of 2020-2022 will be more with respect to governance. If, as I believe, more and more substantive information spreads wider and wider, more and more people will wake up and become apoplectic at what has been done, which will, in itself, have consequences, huge consequences. So, that said, let's put COVID to one side and dive into our episode, which has seven sections. The big picture, non-COVID examples of UK tyranny, power, persuasion and democracy, the religious nature of totalitarianism, the origins of globalism, the structure of globalism, and finally, an outro highlighting that there is cause for optimism. One, the big picture. In terms of a quick sitrep of where I believe we are governance-wise, the shortest is Marshall McLuhan writing in 1970s Culture is Not Our Business. He says, World War III is a guerrilla information war with no division between military and civilian participation. Whether Alex Jones is a nut, whether the freaking frogs are turning gay, one of his most memetically repeated pronouncements. He was way ahead of the world in buying the Infowars.com web address for sure. Maybe he read McLuhan. Talking of Jones, who has, who has spawned countless tweets saying that after all, he wasn't wrong in A or B or C or D, and memetics. And thinking also of David Icke, who's the only person I know who's been proved correct for decades in terms of the direction of travel. I'm reminded of another classic meme from this year, a fake BBC News article entitled How to Speak to Your Conspiracy Theorist Friends. The gist of which was to apologise to them and ask how come they'd been completely right. A tweet I saw today listed a dozen key, key issues, which in the past 20 months were deemed, by the official narrative, conspiracy theories, which would have got you kicked off social media channels, all of which, by now, have proven correct. We are for sure in an information war, and the information that we ingest and the information that we share, if seen as a global glowing network of 7 billion or so shining nodes, is literally the sum creation of humanity's thoughts. And as the Buddha said, with our thoughts we make the world. Once again, to turn to Spengler, who I quoted last year, saying that there's no such thing as a free press as it will always be controlled by money power, was correct. What is truth? For the multitude, that which it continually reads and hears. If McLuhan gave us the gist of where the world is going, for a slightly longer overview, I can do no better than to quote Archbishop Vigano, a former apostolic nuncio to the United States of America, who echoes my sentiments in last year's New Year's podcast. For two years now, we've been witnessing a global coup d'etat in which a financial and ideological elite has succeeded in seizing control of part of national governments, public and private institutions, the media, the judiciary, politicians and religious leaders. All of these, without distinction, have become enslaved to these new masters who ensure money, power and social affirmation to their accomplices. Fundamental rights, which up until yesterday were presented as inviolable, have been trampled underfoot in the name of an emergency, today a health emergency, tomorrow an ecological emergency, and after that an internet emergency. This global coup d'etat deprives citizens of any possibility of defence, since the legislative, executive and judicial powers are complicit in the violation of law, justice and the purpose for which they exist. It's a global coup d'etat 
because this criminal attack against citizens extends to the whole world with very rare exceptions. It is a world war where the enemies are all of us, even those who unwittingly have not yet understood the significance of what is happening. It is a war fought not with weapons, but with illegitimate rules, wicked economic policies and intolerable limitation of natural rights. Supranational organisations financed in large measure by the conspirators of this coup d'etat are interfering in the governments of individual nations and the lives, relationships and health of billions of people. They are doing it for money, certainly, but even more so in order to centralise power so as to establish a planetary dictatorship. It is the great reset of the World Economic Forum, the Agenda 2030 of the United Nations. It is the plan of the New World Order in which a universal republic enslaves everyone and a religion of humanity cancels faith in Christ." Unquote. Well, for religion of humanity in that quote, I'd substitute wokeism. And as for faith in Christ, in the UK, the Church of England is the most effective antidote to that, like most institutions inverted against its original purpose, which, in case you aren't aware of it, is Robert Conquest's third law of politics. The simplest way, he said, to explain the behaviour of any bureaucratic organisation is to assume that it is controlled by a cabal of its enemies. Section 2 of 7. Non-Covid examples of UK tyranny. Some of you may balk at the use of the word tyranny, so I will take three non-Covid related items from the UK government, many of which are paralleled elsewhere. I won't even quote from the, any of the coronavirus legislation which drives a coach and horses through common law and statutory human rights. I could moan about the nightmare of travel from the UK, but I'll have to heap that in with Covid related. I, like many, was complacent thinking only a few years ago that the UK, with its over 1,000 years of history and minimal tyranny, parche the Normans and Cromwell, let alone modern human rights, was relatively safe from tyranny. Solzhenitsyn, in his Gulag archipelago, did not agree, and he turned out to be right. Quotes, there always is this fallacious belief. It would not be the same here. Here such things are impossible. Alas, all the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on earth. I guess all we got for our thousand years of travel was a PM who at least had the decency to look slightly sheepish about, as he put it to senior former journalists recently, I am only following orders. We can speculate on why he's following the orders, and there'll be multiple factors, of course. However, in this case, and many more, we cannot forget Edward Snowden's warning about the danger of having your spooks holding every communication under the sun, especially in our particular context of a man with seven children by multiple women, not all wives, and a prodigious list of indiscretions. I'm not sure whether Johnson was on Epstein's flight logs, but many other high-up people were, and talking of media suppression of inconvenient facts, the shocking Hunter Biden laptop being yet another conspiracy theory according to legacy media that turned out to be true. These days, if the NSN calls anything a conspiracy theory, I'm starting to assume it's true even before knowing anything about it. Or minor matters like the FBI finding Epstein's cache of sex tapes labelled name of underage girl plus name of VOP and then lost certainly unlucky shall we say that Epstein committed cough cough suicide and unfortunate that in the Maxwell trial the topic of who the customers she was procuring were ultimately serving was never raised. Odd then. Back to the UK as Gladstone made clear the British constitution presumes more boldly than any other the good sense and the good faith of those who work it. The flip side of our constitution relying on those in power acting like good 19th century chaps is that as we saw with Blair one can drive a coach and horses through the whole procedure, lie to parliament, be a major part in killing a million Iraqis and yet go on to make tens of millions advising dictators and still end up with being granted 
a knight companion of the most noble order of the garter by the Queen. Fast forward and despite protestations from the Speaker, government is now by press conference. Press conferences full of lies, spin, dodgy data, misleading charts and fawning media, who never question the direction, which of course is the design of Parliament, but merely ask the Prime Minister why he can't be even tougher on the people, closely followed, as we've infamously found out, by them all attending parties, when it was impossible to visit a dying relative or illegal to go to church, pray or attend your granny's funeral. Gladstone must be spinning in his grave. Another good faith item is that the opposition is supposed to, uh, there's a technical word for this, oh yes, the opposition is supposed to oppose, as far as I know. The Labour leader, rather than opposing, has cheered the government on time and time again and voted with them at every turn, with a similar take to the media in asking why the government couldn't be harsher on the people. Calling McLuhan's Infowars angle, memetics are a very one-sided weapon. The lizard brains of the globalists really don't do humour. It's all too human. A memorable meme was the one I saw where the Prime Minister announces to Parliament that in order to protect the people, all under fives will be shot. The Leader of the Opposition replies saying he supports the Prime Minister, but surely the Prime Minister could shoot all under tens. An opinion poll widely covered in the mainstream media the same day said that 85% of the population agree this. And talking of lies, a soldier in said, and it's sadly relevant to our current times, in our country, the lie has become not just a moral category, but a pillar of the state. This was echoed by Václav Havel. Life in the system is so thoroughly permeated with hypocrisy and lies. Because the regime is captive to its own lies, it must falsify everything. It falsifies the past, it falsifies the present, and it falsifies the future. It falsifies statistics. Well before the age of social media, Havel was on the case. Quotes, if the main pillar of the totalitarian system is living a lie, then it is not surprising that the fundamental threat to it is living the truth. This is why the truth must be suppressed more severely than anything else. So let's look at three non-COVID examples of tyrannical, not liberal rule. Just today, Nadine Doris, a government minister, admitted to the existence of, or rather wished to reassure the opposition who are concerned it no longer existed, of a shadowy misinformation and disinformation unit that forces the censorship of citizens' online speech at its own discretion. Apart from being beyond Orwellian, it is rather perverse, given that throughout this whole period, the chief source of misinformation and disinformation has demonstrably been the government and its lapdogs in the media. And that's not to mention the 77th Brigade of the Army, which in contravention of common law is being used against the people, or the BBC, who was so influential in the so-called Global Trusted News Initiative, an Orwellian phrase if ever was one. Second example is the shocker of the online safety bill, the OSB, which has been glossed as an attempt to protect children from online grooming and abuse and to limit the reach of terrorist propaganda. So-called grooming, aka the organised rape and terrorisation of vulnerable girls, as I mentioned in a prior year, is the biggest social crime and failing of the UK state ever, and one which, despite talking tough at election time, the current government has ducked, slash buried, slash rebranded. Even so, I was shocked to read on the Conservative home blog, the Loyalist Conservative blog, bar none, an article by Councillor Emily Barley, the leader of the Conservative group, on Rotherham Council recently in January 2022, reporting that her council working group had found multiple examples of so-called grooming following exactly the same pattern as in the prior scandal. She said the victim reports were sickening and eye-poppingly, when they reported this to the police, quotes, 
What happened next made the situation move from extremely worrying to dire. In response to our reports, nothing happened. When we did get an acknowledgement of the information we had submitted, the tone of the emails was hostile and the implication seemed to be that the authorities didn't want to know. In the case of one at-risk child, it took three months of chasing around various people in departments of the council for anything to be done. Plus a change doesn't even begin to cover it. The age of workers is largely a middle-class phenomenon which is a callous disregard for the poorest and most vulnerable in society. If a conservative group leader of a council in a town notorious for covering up the previous scandal can't get action, who can? So, don't talk to me about the official narrative of the OSB being to protect children. It's disgusting. Rather, the bill is focused at narrative control, another prime globalist agenda. It uses undefined and vague terms, which can then be interpreted in the usual changing way by the so-called regulator Ofcom, whose role in the current COVID fiasco is worthy of detailed investigation. None will happen by the media, for obvious reasons, and subsequent casting into the Tower of London, not as a visitor. To quote UK column news, who are exemplary on governance issues once more on the OSB. Unless stopped, MPs will be creating a law that has no defined parameters. This will allow the government to insert whatever objectives they wish after it is enacted, as they have done with the Coronavirus Act. The use of secondary legislation to give effective meaning to the OSA will greatly reduce parliamentary scrutiny. MPs can reject secondary legislation, but they can't amend it. Therefore, the scope of the OSB can be continually amended and subsequently resubmitted until the government gets whatever it wants. This is a complete betrayal of the democracy most people imagine they live in. It is difficult to envisage how the opacity of the OSB is anything other than deliberate. It suggests a plan to hide legislation from scrutiny before it is made law. Third and final example of UK non-COVID tyranny. To give a further astonishing example from UK column, who have been tracking UK governments in detail, an article on a bill already enacted is entitled, quote, the UK dictatorship allows itself to torture and murder with impunity, unquote, which sounds hysterical, but amazingly enough is accurate. I quote, In October 2020, the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Brackets Criminal Conduct Brackets Bill sailed through its third Commons and Lords readings, virtually unopposed. In the Commons, most opposition MPs didn't even bother to vote. The opposition leader, Sir Keith Starmer, whipped his parliamentary colleagues not to oppose the bill. Just 20 Labour MPs defied the whip to vote against this tyrannical bill. The Act subsequently became law in March 2021. On behalf of the Global Public-Private Partnership, note from me, more on that anon, the UK government has given itself and its agencies under this law the authority to commit any crime it likes without fear of prosecution. The Joint Committee on Human Rights spelt out the purpose of the bill, which provides a statutory basis for a variety of public authorities to authorise informants, covert agents and undercover officers to engage in criminal conduct by explicitly making authorised conduct, quotes, lawful for all purposes. There is no express limit within the bill on the type of criminal conduct that can be authorised. This raises the abhorrent possibility of serious crimes such as rape, murder or torture being carried out under an authorisation. Government bodies ranging from intelligence services, the police and the military, to the Department of Health, the Social Care, the Food Standards Agency, and ironically the Ministry of Justice, can commit crimes against the people with total abandon. The state doesn't need to justify its criminal activity. But if anyone asks, it can simply say that it broke the law, quotes, in the interests of national security for the purpose of preventing or detecting crime or present, preventing disorder or in the interests of the economic well-being in the United Kingdom. And in essence, it can make up any excuse it likes. Not that asking the question will serve any practical purpose. The bill gives agents of the state immunity from prosecution 
and so even if you had a watertight case proving state crimes, there would be no defendant to bring it against. Imagine what the Prime Minister would have said about that a few years ago when he was a columnist at the Telegraph. All of this, of course, as I said above, is not to mention Covid. The disastrous Project Fear, where have we heard that before, around Covid, as documented well by Laura Dodsworth in her book State of Fear, which on Amazon currently gets 4.8 out of 5 stars from an astonishing 1,473 ratings. This version of Project Fear has destroyed the mental health of many, contributed to suicides and paranoia. Some people test many, many times a day let alone the sending of sick, infectious peoples into care homes or the notorious Liverpool pathway near cull of many folk in old people's homes last year. Australia has become a prison state with de facto concentration camps. If you don't think so, try reading some of the sad occurrence by disgruntled folks held there. And an international plea by Aborigines who are being targeted fell on deaf ears from all agencies who historically would have howled at the moon in response. I still can't forget the dreadful video clip I saw on Twitter of a granny being knocked to the ground by police breaking her hip and then for good measure being pepper sprayed in the face by another policeman. Demons truly walk amongst us. New Zealand, let's not even mention, although one of their heights of absurdity was putting 5 million people in lockdown, a prison term of course, for three days because a single 58 year old had had a positive test. In New York, Canada and other places, draconian restrictions are in place. Depending on whether you've been injected with the still as yet not properly authorised, it's still under emergency use authorisation. Various of the Axis powers are showing old habits die hard by locking down mRNA-free citizens, banning them from working, and in some cases making injection quotes mandatory, unquotes. It's beyond shocking. No matter what your position on the situation, you would simply have thought uh, a few years ago, I was raving mad if I said this. Especially for an infection, which is no new Black Death, no new Ebola, and with the appropriately anagrammed Omicron mutation being more akin to a bad cold which has given many people natural immunity. Not to mention travel challenges, bans, ludicrous tests, massive corruption, the widespread ignoring the rules by the governing classes and contracts to mates of MPs, the list goes on and on. The irony is that as much as globalist rule is by definition about subverting, overruling or destroying all localism, all nations' ability to rule themselves and their indigenous cultures, old and new, what we see is nothing more than archetypal, stereotypical national behaviour, whether it be demonstrating the old adage that the problem with Australia is not that it is a nation of former prisoners, but that it is a nation of former prison officers. And as to Austria slash Germany, as a dissident German YouTube channel put it, once again we're following an Austrian, which didn't entirely work out too well last time. Long story short, I do not think it is hyperbolic to say, governance-wise, in the West we are right in this shit. Florida is one shining beacon of sanity, but even Sweden now has vaccine passports and is trialling microchips injected under the skin. A much better mark of the beast than something on your phone, and furthermore, a mark of the beast updated to 21st century technology. Isn't progress wonderful? Section 3. Power, Persuasion and Democracy Let's start at the shallow end. How does power operate? What are its implications for governance? And this, of course, is not just a state thing. There are plenty of books about governance in the business sector, barbarians at the gates being but one. Totalitarianism, governance that seeks to define more and more of how its citizens shall run their lives, is in a sense the limit case of normal governance. Firstly, what is the role of the media? Notable contributions in the 20th century are clearly Edward Bernays' 1928 Manufactured Consent, which is at the heart of politics as well as business. Mind you, I'm not sure when propagandists dropped the opagandists part of the world 
rebranded themselves as PR. Marshall McLuhan, in his 1951 The Mechanical Bride, Folklore of Industrial Man on Advertising, a key branch of propaganda, commented, Ours is the first age in which many thousands of the best-trained individual minds have made it a full-time business to get inside the collective public mind. To get inside in order to manipulate, exploit, control is the object now. And to generate heat, not light, is the intention. To keep everybody in the helpless state engendered by prolonged mental rutting is the effect of many ads and much entertainment alike. Notar Bene, the phrases helpless state and prolonged mental rutting. Ray, what has been done to many of our fellow citizens in the past two years? Just before Christmas, I was talking to the checkout lady at Waitrose and asking her how she felt about the current situation. She replied, I've had three vaccinations. I'm absolutely terrified. If I didn't need the money, I wouldn't leave my house. Poor, poor woman. No mumbling from me about what the South African doctor who'd discovered the Omicron variant had found was palliative enough after she'd been propagandised for nearly two years by non-stop so-called news. Guy Debord's 1967 Society of the Spectacle Needs No Introduction has been much reread of late. In 1988, Noam Chomsky co-authored Manufacturing Consent. This dismissed the notion that the media exist to serve their customers, their readers, but rather established that they manufacture our consent, telling us what those in power need them to tell us so we can fall in line. Democracy is staged with the help of media that work as propaganda machines and operate through five filters, according to Chomsky. One, ownership by corporations that need profit, to which critical journalism plays second fiddle. Two, advertising. The media's product is not their so-called news, but you, their audience. Three, complicity. Those who are in power and those who report on them are in mutual relationship. Governments, corporations, big institutions know how to play the media game, knowing how to influence the news narrative and feeding media scoops, official accounts, interviews with the key players, etc. Four, penalties for challenging the official line or whistleblowing. In essence, exile and being kept away from the real inside track. Not only that, but the insiders will take care of their chums and they will diss you and other truth-tellers big time, something we've seen disgusting excess in the last two years. Finally, fifthly, creation of an enemy. To manufacture consent and to get your readers coming back, you need a bogeyman that makes them fearful and worry about their futures, or so you tell them. Overall, as Andrei Miroshnichenko said in his 2013 Human as Media, the mass media proclaim themselves as a supplier, but it really serves as a valve which opens for money or when given permission by the authorities. Incidentally, in the same book, he touches on one factor which for sure worries those in power and is one of our reasons for optimism. Quote, if historical analogies are accurate, then we should expect comparable cataclysms following the rise of the internet. The powers of the old authorities have always collapsed along with the loss of sacral control over information. As a result, the social, political and economic status quo falls apart. So that's a quick scamper through media theory, as way too many people don't understand that their job is not, quotes, telling us how it is. Such people misunderstand the role of the media, especially in an age of government, so-called nudge units, hat tip to Cameron, regulators and the government hoovering up advertising space at a gigantic rate and paying full whack. Moving on to the second topic in the section of power. The iron law of oligarchy is an important concept coined by Robert Michels in his 1911 political parties. It asserts that rule by an elite or oligarchy is inevitable as an iron law within any democratic organisation as part of the tactical and technical necessities of organisation. 
One of the most seminal texts on power is De Juvenal's 1945 On Power, the Natural History of its Growth, to quote its blurb. Documenting the process by which government and controlling majorities have grown increasingly powerful and tyrannical, Bertrand de Juvenal demonstrates how democracies have failed to limit the powers of government. De Juvenal traces this development to the days of raw absolutism, which established large administrative bureaucracies and thus laid the foundation of the modern omnipotent state. De Juvenal covers the centralising role of power. Power attracts more power from wherever it can be sucked. Back to the narratives. One of the highest meta-narratives is that of Whig history or progress or progressives, i.e. that we've been improving constantly since those awful bad old days and getting more freedom and more liberty and being better off than ever. This, of course, is simply not true. The state has expanded to, with the exception of World War II perhaps, its largest ever size in history. Let us not forget, for almost the entirety of human history there's no such thing as the state. And then for most of the rest you had the tribal leader and his entourage or the king and his court. So-called democracy has put that process on steroids, sucking out more and more private wealth to fuel its non-stop growth and non-stop absurd complication of law, tax, regulation and so forth, which certainly does not benefit the average citizen. Far from it. De Juvenal charts the expansion by the state into ever more realms, removing power that was once held by civic organisations, the church, community and the family. Europe grew under a two-power centre model, church and the state, and both were careful not to become too unpopular as they vied with each other, lest they cede too much power, kudos or goodwill to the other. In a similar way, when the US faced the USSR, it was held in check to a large degree as its pitch was one of moral as well as economic superiority. After the fall of the USSR, the US's pitch became loads of money and, as per Gordon Gecko, greed is good. As to the last frontier of state expansion, Look how it is usurping the role of parents in recent times. At a quick glance, some three dozen countries make homeschooling illegal, including in Germany. Your kinder must absorb the state propaganda at all times, whether those times be Prussian times, or Nazi times, or Volk times. In passing, it was only finally legal to homeschool in all US states in 1993. In many Western countries at large these days, the state will also gender change your kids or inject them if it fancies, and you will be ever more excluded from their upbringing. On to third subtopic in this section, democracy. If linear progress in human affairs is a myth, the one that undergirds the ever-expanding state, another major one is that democracy is wonderful. First, as we all know, our system would simply not be recognised as remotely democratic by any Athenian whatsoever. Secondly, it's far worse than one might think. In a dryly academic book released in 2001, by Hans Hermann Hopper, Democracy, the God that Failed, he gives a systematic treatment of the historic transformation of the West from monarchy to democracy, revisionist in nature, it reaches the conclusion that monarchy is a lesser evil than democracy, but outlines deficiencies in both. The title of a short YouTube clip of Hopper talking sums it up, quotes, kings are bad, politicians are terrible. Two important big picture arguments are that in monarchies, there is a clear responsibility lying with an individual and a family, perhaps. If things fuck up, they get the chop, literally. You can rid yourself of a bad monarch, and the next one will definitely take more care to preserve his reign and his life. Contrast that with the modern state, where it is next to impossible to find out who made any decision, responsibility being deliberately diffused for the self-protection of the bureaucracy, the permanent state, as well as the temporary state, the politicians. And the diffusion of real power means that while parties swap seats now and again, and the front man sometimes goes, 
with a wonderfully full Rolodex to monetize, the whole caravan rolls on unchanged. Besides, recapping the media's role in manufacturing consent, we can see that the whole pantomime of the changing of Prime Ministers, especially when they are in office, is manna from heaven for the media. It provides great entertainment for the masses, akin to throwing Christians to the lions in the Colosseum or watching gladiatorial battles. The media gets more sales, views, and the populace gets all the drama of a battle and a kill and an opportunity to indulge in schadenfreude as a detested leader is defenestrated and never killed or imprisoned, of course. This also serves to reinforce the myth in the people's minds that the mainstream media is, after all, really on their side, as the people can read articles slavering for blood with which they can wholeheartedly agree. The society of the spectacle has a great day. The king, believing the country his possession, pride and joy, and something to pass on to his family, has a totally different incentive structure from the here-today-gone-tomorrow president or PM who acts more like a temporary caretaker than a long-term owner. There is no long-term continuity of direction. This is always being imperiled by the next election date. Furthermore, the king was born to the throne in many cases, whereas the, the politician conducted a long shimmy up a greasy pole having to do all the things one can imagine to get to the top. That is, the rules of the political game make it far more likely that the person who gets to the top will be a cynical opportunist who can't be trusted. Of course you can get monarchs like that too, but you also have a chance of getting a reasonably good one. So if England could produce a King John, it could also produce an Elizabeth I, who in many ways started the era of success. As Hopper points out, there is no empirical evidence that shifts from monarchy to democracy created prosperity, which was clearly driven by technological changes in recent centuries. Furthermore, as he says, there is no political theorist who makes any argument for large-scale democracy who says anything other than it is better than the alternatives. As he points out, democracy's most fanatic supporter was Rousseau, who thought that it could only work in small places because in small places everybody would control all the other people and the instinct of people not to loot the property of people nearby, who have more than themselves, could be curtailed by this direct social order. An argument, of course, which leads right into the ever-increasing taxes and hence size of the state when one tries democracy well beyond the scale where any social restraint can be exercised. Gladstone warned in 1889 against the overexpansion of the state, something that was to proceed on steroids in the 20th century, producing the largest state Britain has ever seen by a long way. Gladstone said, But let the working man be on his guard against another danger. We live at a time when there is a disposition to think that the government ought to do this and that, and that the government ought to do everything. There are things which the government ought to do, I have no doubt. In former periods, the government have neglected much, and possibly even now they neglect something. But there is a danger on the other side. If the government takes into its hand that which the man ought to do for himself, it will inflict upon him greater mischiefs than all the benefits he will have received, or all the advantages that would accrue from them. The essence of the whole thing is that the spirit of self-reliance, the spirit of true and genuine manly independence, should be preserved in the minds of the people, in the minds of the masses of the people, in the mind of every member of the class. If he loses his self-denial, if he learns to live in a craven dependence upon wealthier people rather than upon himself, you may depend upon it, he incurs mischief for which no compensation can be made. End quote. The last words, you may depend upon it, he incurs mischief for which no compensation can be made, uncannily represent the situation of ever more pressure from the state to get jammed with an experimental substance or be demonised if you do not, for which the manufacturer will never be liable if there is indeed any mischief.
We have not heeded Gladstone's warning, nor the entire 19th century British example of the so-called night watchman state. Minarchism, pretty much minimum possible governance. And it is little surprise that the post-war so-called state that will look after you from cradle to grave ends up deciding that rather than look after us, it actually owns us. We are its property. Section 4 of 7, The Religion of Totalitarianism. In the limit, the ever more powerful state becomes tyrannical and desires to control thought as well as action. The UK being an example of this in World War II when it took over and commanded and controlled an entire country. But of course, it is one thing if society has only one aim, and a totally different thing if every citizen has their own complex and long list of needs and desires. Friedrich Hayek elaborated in his 1945 Road to Serfdom his unfashionable view at the time that, as it were, distributed direction and governance with a price mechanism would outperform central planning, in which he was proved totally correct, but perhaps only in the 1980s, where that was flooded with for some time before collapsing into corporatism oligopoly and where we find ourselves today. The old boy had seen Austrian imperial tyranny in World War I, as well as fleeing Nazi imperial tyranny in World War II. He must be feeling pretty smug in heaven right now, as his prediction of where the status road leads, the road to serfdom, has proved absolutely correct. To quote Václav Havel, There is obviously something in human beings which responds to this totalitarian system. Human beings are compelled to live within a lie, but they can be compelled to do so only because they are in fact capable of living in this way. Therefore, not only does the system alienate humanity, but at the same time alienated humanity supports this system as its own involuntary master plan, as a degenerate image of its own degeneration as a record of people's own failure as individuals." Unquote. This whole tyranny playbook is as old as time. Every tin pot dictator knows that when threatened, the masses will follow what appears to be the strongest form in the room. In passing, a hat tip in this section to the always excellent Academy of Ideas, whose video, Is Government the New God? The Religion of Totalitarianism, has provided many of the following quotes. Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism, 1951, is sadly not just of historical relevance, but current relevance. Quote, Totalitarianism is never content to rule by external means, namely through the state and a machinery of violence. Thanks to its peculiar ideology and the role assigned to it in this apparatus of coercion, totalitarianism has discovered a means of dominating and terrorising human beings from within. Unquote. State propaganda, continual fear, continual threats, risk of loss of livelihood or death, fear-mongering plus constant promises are all parts of recipes that have been seen in 20th century totalitarian regimes and many of them now. Winding up the populace into hysteria is a key tool of totalitarianism. This relies on division between the chosen ones and the detestable, the heretics who are beyond redemption and must be eliminated. Draculich, in her analysis of what led to the 1990s Yugoslav ethnic conflict, said, In time, those others are stripped of all their individual characteristics. They are no longer acquaintances or professionals with particular names, habits, appearances and characters. Instead, they are members of the enemy group. When a person is reduced to an abstraction in such a way, one is free to hate him because the moral obstacle has already been abolished. Unquote. Citizens must embrace strict conformity in action and in their hearts and minds. Giovanni Amendola. Fascism did not so much aim to govern Italy as to monopolise the control of Italian consciences. The possession of power is not enough for fascism. It needs to possess 
the private conscience of all its citizens. It demands the conversion of Italians. Fascism makes the same claims as a religion. It does not promise happiness to those who do not convert." Unquote. We are, appallingly enough, well down Hannah Arendt's Five Steps of Dehumanization. Let me quote from a von Gesau 1711-21 article in Ray. 1. Creation and political instrumentalization of fear. 2. Soft exclusion. The group turned into scapegoats is excluded from certain, though not all, parts of its society. 3. Mostly occurring in parallel with the second step. Is executed through documented justification of the exclusion, academic research, expert opinions and scientific studies, widely disseminated through vast media coverage, are used to underpin the propaganda of fear and subsequent exclusion of a specific group, to explain or provide evidence why the exclusion is necessary for the good of society and for everybody to stay safe. 4. Hard exclusion. The group that is now proven to be the cause of society's problems and current impasse is subsequently excluded from civil society as a whole and becomes rightless. 5. The fifth and final step of dehumanisation is extermination, social or physical. The excluded group is forcefully ejected from society, either by any participation in society being made impossible or their banishment into camps, ghettos, prisons and medical facilities. And just to label the point, that was Hannah Arendt's Five Steps of Dehumanisation based on her study of Nazi Germany, which sadly seems to be rather relevant today. The power and the quest for it attracts pathological personalities we can take as read. Anyone think the likes of Jacinda Ardern, Trust Only Your Government, Fauci, I Am The Science, the evil Dan Andrews and black-faced Trudeau Soros' bestie are the kind of people you'd want running your local fate, let alone things on a grander scale? Not only does power corrupt, power is magnetic to the ethically flexible, shall we say. Power and the quest for it, Douglas Adams summarised in Zafel Beadle Brooks being made galactic president as he was the only person who didn't want the job. Back to Nietzsche and the death of God, we covered in the prior New Year's episode, he himself being no great fan of the church, to put it mildly. G.K. Chesterton's famous comment is that when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. Valdemar Gurian wrote, The totalitarian movements that have arisen after the First World War are basically religious movements. The aim is not only to change political and social institutions, but also to remodel the nature of man and society. Unquote. And circling this all back to Nietzsche, we can quote Jung. In consequence of the decline of Christianity, the religious projections have largely fallen away from the divine figures and have necessarily settled in the human sphere. The modern, enlightened intellect cannot imagine anything greater than those tin gods with totalitarian pretensions who call themselves state. On to our final two sections on the origins of globalism and the structure of globalism. Origins of globalism. A century ago, Max Weber thought deeply about rationalisation in modern society, which he saw as trapping people in an iron cage in systems based purely on teleological efficiency, rational calculation and control. A man not afraid of multiple metaphors. He also wrote about the polar night of icy darkness. Furthermore, he fretted that this would lead to the rise of dictatorship, a system of command and control being, as it were, ripe for being commanded and controlled. This is, of course, what Palpatine did and what the globalists are taking advantage of today. Quoting for a change from Gladstone's adversary, Disraeli, the world is governed by very different personages from what is imagined by those who are not behind the scenes. In the 20th century, Roosevelt said, Nothing happens accidentally in politics. When something happens, you can bet on it that it was exactly planned that way. 
Or as Carter said in the 21st century, the US is run by oligarchs. And you don't get much higher up the power tree than Disraeli, Roosevelt and Carter in the past few centuries. When the state, including regulators, who, as Sir Paul Tucker said when he was on the podcast, are in effect creating extra-parliamentary laws, is a vast command and control network in major nations, when companies are commanded and controlled and all but unaccountable, and when they oligopolize as they are in most markets, well, put it this way, were Palpatine to have his eyes on the earth right now, he'd be rubbing his hands in glee. On the other hand, at least we have Klaus Schwab, I guess, an archetypal Bond villain if there ever was one. And contrary to the lies of the MSN and so-called fact-checkers, one of my favourite tweets of the year being, fact-checkers never existed before the truth started leaking out, and the inane midwittery of labelling people as conspiracy theorists if they disagree with the official narrative, the World Economic Forum is super influential and they get together under our noses all the time. In 1992, Schwab established a parallel institution, the Global Leaders for Tomorrow School. Sounds nice. Members of the school's first intake in 1992 included figures many of whom we would have taken as nobodies back then. People called names like Merkel, Sarkozy, Blair as prime examples. Other exemplars are Jacinda Ardern, Gates, Bezos, Branson, Chelsea Clinton, Gavin Newsom, Nikki Haley, Jonathan Soros, Paul Krugman, Larry Summers, Lachlan Murdoch, Steve Ballner, Eric Schmidt, Jimmy Wales, Zuckerberg, Sandberg, Debbie Sridhar, that scourge of Covid policy in Scotland, and Guy Verhofstadt. It does not mean, of course, that everything they do is nefarious. Of course it isn't. It does, however, point to a coordination, an inner circle networking, and at a bare, bare minimum, you might end up with groupthink. As George Carlin famously said, it's a big club and you ain't in it. Or, if you are, I apologise for not mentioning you, sir. May I put a mask on and serve you some canopies? I do not purport to cover a proper history, or even sketch out one around globalism, but I will mention some key organisational players before ending up with a very useful and insightful organogram. One of the first examples of a global governance organisation was the League of Nations, formed after the First World War, with the noble aim of stopping any such fuck-up anywhere near as bad as WW1. This did not entirely succeed, as shown by WW2. Much of the deep roots of the current globalistic problems line decisions made at the end of WW2, be it the United Nations creation or the denazification of Germany, which so empowered Frankfurt School Marxists who then moved to the US and inculcated what we now label as workism, the Marxist division of society not by class but by social categories such as age, gender and ethnicity. And last but not least, the US imported not just German cultural Marxists but some 1600 German Nazi scientists in Operation Paperclip and a nucleus of Nazi deep state as a nucleus of the CIA, the US needing its professional spy work enhanced. If Weber wrote a century ago, more recently, in 1990, Bertram Gross in Friendly Fascism, The New Face of Power in America, was also sounding the warning bells. Looking at the present, I see a more probable future, a new despotism creeping slowly across America. Faceless oligarchs sit at command posts of a corporate government complex that have been slowly evolving over many decades. In efforts to enlarge their own powers and privileges, they are willing to have others suffer the intended or unintended consequences of their institutional personal greed. For Americans, these consequences include chronic inflation, recurring recession, open and hidden unemployment, the poisoning of air, water, soil and bodies, and most important, the subversion of our constitution. Given that that was written 32 years ago, I'd say it was pretty prescient. After all, Twitter manages to deplatform a sitting US president, more recently a congresswoman, 
as well as a host of others, including Robert Malone, who has 10 patents on mRNA therapy dating back to the 1980s. John Whitehead has written more than most this century, chronicling the incoming governments in books which are super well rated on Amazon. Notably, nearly a decade ago, in 2013, A Government at Wolves, The Emerging American Police State, and 2015's Battlefield America, The War on the American People. In a January 4th article this year, Despotism is a New Normal, Looming Threats to Freedom in 2022, he lays out the key dangers he sees to our collective and individual freedoms now and in the year to come, and like me and many, believes the current trajectory is unsustainable. Areas he highlights as serious problems are censorship, the emergency state, pre-crime, the surveillance state, genetic privacy, bodily integrity, gun control, show your paper society, and singularity, the whole metaverse trend, and despotism. Wonder how he sleeps at night contemplating all those things. It's bad enough writing about them once a year. Nor is he alone. The super bright classicist Victor Davis Hanson gets 4.8 stars out of 5 on Amazon for his 2021 oeuvre, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism and Globalisation Are Destroying the Idea of America, quoting from the blurb. In The Dying Citizen, Hanson outlines the historical forces that led to this crisis. The evisceration of the middle class over the last 50 years has made many Americans dependent on the federal government. Open borders have undermined the idea of allegiance to a particular place. Identity politics have eradicated our collective civic sense of self, and a top-heavy administrative state has endangered personal liberty along with formal efforts to weaken the Constitution. Pointing to the perniciously corrosive impact of bad state-run or state-controlled education, apparently most Americans do not know what the First Amendment is, nor what the three branches of government are, nor who key historical figures such as Ulysses S. Grant or Eisenhower are. It is naturally a huge task to document all the players in the distributed nodes and clubs and think tanks that are super influential. So I'll wrap up this section on the background to globalism with three super influential bodies. The Club of Rome, the Trilateral Commission, brackets which that non-opposition leader Keith Starmer is member of, and the Council for Foreign Relations, the CFR. Before going on to wrap up, the Club of Rome, a think tank and an advisor to the United Nations, was founded in 1968 at David Rockefeller's estate in Bellagio, Italy. Its existing and past membership include well-known globalist figures such as Bill Clinton, Al Gore, Kofi Annan, Soros and Gates. The first global revolution, a report by the Council of the Club of Rome, was published in 1991, just prior to the United Nations Convention on Climate Change. In this report, the Club of Rome's authors admit that, quotes, in searching for the new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine and the like would fit the bill. In their totality and in their interactions, these phenomena do constitute a common threat which demands the solidarity of all peoples. Unquote. In the transformed world envisioned by this network of global elites, they have this to say about the limits of democracy. Democracy is not a panacea. It cannot organise everything and is unaware of its own limits. These facts must be faced squarely. Sacrilegious though this may sound, democracy is no longer well suited for the tasks ahead. The complexity and the technical nature of many of today's problems do not always allow elected representatives to make competent decisions at the right time. Unquote. So, a prediction made in 1991 that elected representatives in nation states would not be competent to make major policy decisions, and that democracy, rather than the best of a bunch of bad systems, was simply an inconvenient barrier that had to be overcome. And this self-selecting group of powerful internationalists are still today driving the world's population to a predetermined destination. For example, condemning petrol and diesel-powered vehicles to the scrappy the elected government, opposition political parties, and the mainstream print and visual media appear to be willing accomplices in the deception that we live in a healthy democracy. 
Let us pick up the Trilateral Commission and the CFR, Council of Foreign Relations, as covered in an article by James Perloff, July 2009. It's quite a long quote, so everything I say is a quote until I say unquote. During his presidential campaign, Barack Obama consistently promised Americans change. Such promises aren't new to the voting public. When Jimmy Carter ran for president, he said, the people of this country know from bitter experience that we are not going to get changes merely by shifting around the same group of insiders. And top Carter aide Hamilton Jordan promised, if after the inauguration you find a Cy Vance as Secretary of State and a Zbigniew Brzezinski as head of national security, then I would say we failed and I'd quit. Yet, Carter selected Vance as Secretary of State and Brzezinski as national security advisor. The same group of insiders had been shifted around and Jordan did not quit. Carter's administration was dominated by members of the Trilateral Commission, which had been founded by Brzezinski and David Rockefeller. In 1980, when Ronald Reagan was campaigning against Carter, he protested, I don't believe that the Trilateral Commission is a conspiratorial group, but I do think its interests are devoted to international banking, multinational corporations and so forth. I don't think that any administration of the US government should have the top 19 positions filled by people from any one group or organisation representing one viewpoint. No, I would go in a different direction. I'm continuing the Pearl of article and still quoting. Yet, after his election, President Reagan picked 10 trilateralists for his transition team and included in his administration such trilateralists as Vice President George Bush, Defence Secretary Caspar Weinberger, US Trade Representative William Brock and Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. Yet, the entire North American membership of the Trilateral Commission has never numbered much over 100. The reason that presidential candidates' promises of change go largely unfilled once in office, they draw their top personnel from the same establishment groups of which the Trilateral Commission is one. Chief amongst these groups is the Council of Foreign Relations, CFR, the most visible manifestation of what some have called the American establishment. Members of the Council have dominated the administration of every president since Franklin D. Roosevelt at the cabinet and sub-cabinet level. It does not matter whether the president is a Democrat or Republican, as we will see later, Barack Obama is no exception to CFR influence. In theory, America's government is supposed to be of the people, by the people, for the people. While this concept rang true in early America, and many individuals still trusted it, the last century has seen the reality of power increasingly shift from the people to an establishment rooted in banking Wall Street and powerful multinational corporations. Syndicated columnist Edith Roosevelt, granddaughter of Teddy Roosevelt, explained, The word establishment is a general term for the power elite in international finance, business, the professions and government, largely from the Northeast, who wield most of the power regardless of who is in the White House. Most people are unaware of the existence of this legitimate mafia. Yet the power of the establishment makes itself felt from the professor who seeks a foundation grant to a candidate for a cabinet post or state department job. It affects the nation's policies in almost every area. Roosevelt added, this group's goal is a one-world socialist government governed by experts like themselves. David Rockefeller, the long-term chairman and now chairman emeritus of the CFR, acknowledged the role of the establishment in trying to lead America in the one world direction in his 2002 book Memoirs. For more than a century, ideological extremists at either end of the political spectrum have seized upon well-publicised incidents such as my encounter with Castro to attack the Rockefeller family for the inordinate influence they claim we wield over American political and economic institutions. Some even believe we're part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States characterising my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world, if you like. If that's the charge, I stand guilty and I am proud of it. 
end of the very long quote. There's no end to all this stuff. I haven't mentioned the long ascent of technocracy, for which sustainability is a mere cover. A simple way into that is Patrick Wood's 2018 Technocracy, The Hard Road to World Order, 4.8 out of 5 stars on Amazon from 170 ratings. To wrap up this section, here is a clip from the blurb. And don't forget that this was published well before COVID. In 1974, Trilateral Commission member and academic Richard Gardner wrote an article, The Hard Road to World Order, for Foreign Affairs magazine, predicting the future of the Commission's self-proclaimed new international economic order. Gardner spoke of an end run around national sovereignty, a booming, buzzing confusion, and building it from the bottom up rather than attempting an old-fashioned frontal assault. After almost 45 years, it is time to examine the record. In technocracy, the hard road to world order, Wood traces the steps and developments that led to the United Nations establishment of sustainable de development as an outgrowth of historic technocracy from the 1930s. UN programmes such as the 2030 Agenda, New Urban Agenda and Paris Climate Agreement are all working together to displace capitalism and free enterprise as the world's principal economic system. As a resource-based economic system, sustainable development intends to take control of all resources, all production and all consumption on planet Earth, leaving all of its inhabitants to be micromanaged by a scientific dictatorship. Topics covered include the devolution of federal governments, combined with the rise of global smart cities, Tools are examined, like ubiquitous surveillance, collaborative governance, public-private partnerships, reflexive law, fintech, including cryptocurrencies and the drive towards a cashless society. The spiritual aspect of sustainable development is also explored as an important component of manipulation. So finally, the structure of globalism. In the intro, we skated past examining the cultural revolution. However, in terms of something like tools or subsidiary concepts, I think it's important to note that globalism uses many tools to achieve its ends, notably culture, along with neoliberalism, technocracy, ever-expanding national states bureaucracies, including the massive micro-regulation of almost every sector of the economy. All are simply tools, simply devices of the globalists in their eyes, to ensure that they have top-down control of everything. In the case of culture, there are a number of mechanisms to undermine traditional culture and facilitate top-down rule, all of which are aimed at destroying local cultures and replacing them by one global culture. And as I mentioned earlier, if they haven't come for your culture yet, I hope they never do. The Anglosphere has been the most affected, followed by Europe. At the opposite end of the spectrum lie the likes of Russia and China, or more broadly in the latter case, Confucian societies, who remain proud and defensive of their historic cultures. Quite what Russia and China's relationship with the globalists is remains to be clarified. Here are six key examples of how culture is simply a tool to facilitate top-down rule. Atomization, division, immigration, the rewriting of history, the disconnection of peoples and lands, and the undermining of the nation-state. 1. Atomization. People are positioned as consumers, not citizens. Or, the bullshit phrase is used, quotes, citizen of the world, unquotes, which is a complete oxymoron, as you can only be a citizen of a state. Neoliberalism helps to atomise society and the infinite greed of the state for power has ensured ever fewer competing bodies for our loyalty or our direction. 2. Division. The promoting of never-ending division you may have noticed in roughly every agenda these days. It is always centrifugal, always designed to fragment and fracture any social cohesion. Divisions include 
polarization in politics, young versus old, black versus white, women versus men, trans versus turf, Brexiteers versus Remainers, mask wearers versus anti-mask, etc, etc, etc. The less coherent national societies are, the easier it is to conquer them. Immigration, where the 2018 massively wide-ranging Marrakesh Declaration signed by most of the world's countries is a prime example of top-down globalist governance, is being used around the Western world to dilute dominant ethnic cohesion in many recipient countries whilst weakening the donor countries whose citizens with get up and go, literally get up and go, paying human traffickers, those worst of people, along the way. Immigration into Europe seems to favour the importation of high birth rate peoples into a literally non-replacing European population, fulfilling three ends. Firstly, some political parties use it as one of their tools simply as they will believe they will get more votes and thus be more likely to be in power. Hat tip to the Democrats and Tony Blair. Second, to provide cheap labour for neoliberalism. Immigrating millions of, say, Swiss people would not achieve this. And thirdly, to once again reduce social cohesion due to the compound interest benefit for the globalists of the importation of people with higher birth rates. The painting of any discussion about appropriate levels of immigration as quotes racist unquotes stifled any debate while the policy has and is being enacted. It is a non sequitur to say that racism, any sense of the innate superiority of one group over another, has to be involved. Let us say, for example, that over the past two decades the UK had only immigrated Swiss, Swedish and Singaporeans, or any other random countries I can think of. The same social decohesion would have been achieved. Look at the multiple cases Austro-Hungarian Empire broke up, or the Yugoslavian Empire, or Czechoslovakia, or countless examples around the world, where very, very similar peoples decided to go their own ways, sometimes violently. Somewhere between everyone being an individual, connected to no one else, simply an atom, and seven billion people being ruled as if they are one, lies a kind of temperate zone of stable societal size. The more people, the more power of that nation. But equally, beyond a certain point, just in the same way that heavier atoms in the periodic table tend to break up spontaneously as the binding energy required is too high, then so do over large societies. China is a great example of that. Every now and then some dynasty comes along with enough binding power to unite vast areas, and then, after a few centuries, in a Spengalerian fashion, they have grown old, weak and soft, and China once more fragments into warring kingdoms. Fourth factor, history. History is turned on its head and through the control of the education system by cultural Marxists as well as wokeism via social media channels, huge percentages, especially younger folk, have been indoctrinated that their ancestors were roughly speaking all bad. That people who feel that they live in societies of guilt, wrongdoing, historically irredeemable sins and so forth are easily conquered. Fifthly, the land. Any identification or ancestral connection to a particular land is ignored. All places are simply seen as indistinguishable territory, as airport lounges for transferable consumers. Besides, they have plans for the land, as we see with Gates becoming the largest owner of farmland in the US, and BlackRock et al. hoovering up housing at a phenomenal rate. 6. The nation-state. Overall, the nation-state is continually undermined for obvious reasons. One way is making nationalism a dirty word. I do lose track in passing, as Americans seem to be brought up to think that one of nationalism and patriotism is good and the other bad. I can never remember which is which. To me, in English-English, they are very similar concepts indeed. But to make nationalism a dirty word is surely to make the concept of a nation-state a dirty concept. Another technique of undermining the nation-state is by increasingly applying the slur of racist 
to in effect include favouring any concept of borders. The outgoing head of border control in the UK being a great example of conquest's third law, he bemoaning the very idea of borders on his retirement. Oh, Soros must rub his hands with glee. And let's not even start talking about the so-called colour revolutions and their origins. Why is the nation-state undermined? Well, obviously, as it's a competing power centre, and as per juvenile, power will always flow to the centre, now a global centre, not a national centre, by sucking power from competing power centres. Nationalism is equated with Nazi Germany, which is very odd indeed, as Nazi Germany seemed to have the same kind of disdain for national borders as Soros did. Besides, even if it hadn't, it is hardly the best argument for nations are bad by picking one example. It would be akin to saying human beings are bad as Hitler was a human being. Mind you, there does seem to be a strong flavour of misanthropy and feeling that humans are bad in the globalists and too much slavering of their chops at the concept of a depopulation agenda. Anyway, the above are just simple sketches to make the point that culture for the globalists is simply a tool to be manipulated for their ends. Whether you think of it as a tool or something below them on the organogram is a matter of choice. Either way, it is the antithetical concept to all traditional concepts of culture throughout the entire history of mankind, where it has been seen as something central to healthy human societies and something that is a source of pride and strength for the people of those cultures. The desire for power always creates its own structures of the real governance, the real power behind the scenes, to use Disraeli's 19th century phrase. It is inane to pretend that these do not exist in the 21st century. They and their ambitions are well documented. And if you are a young aspirant to political power, the path to it is clear. And the ascending level of public clubs, let alone any private ones that exist, is very evident. We do not yet have a global Anthony Sampson, whose 1962 Anatomy of Britain, with many updated editions, sketched out where the power lay then. However, we do have one excellent October 2021 article by Ian Davis on Off Guardian, entitled What is the Global Public-Private Partnership? I've included Davis's organogram JPEG in the show notes. If your app doesn't show show notes, then check it out at this episode's londonfintechpodcast.com page. It has a five-layer model as the structure of global governance. At the top lie the policymakers, such as the BIS, the central banks, the WEF, the CFR, the Club of Rome et al. They're the ones running the show. Below them lie the policy distributors, such as the UN, the IMF, the IPCC, the WHO, World Bank, so-called philanthropists, global corporations, and so forth. The third layer is policy enforcers, national governments, regulators, police, courts, and such forth, and selective scientific groups, such as SAGE, NERVTAG, MHRA, and so forth. Below the policy enforcers are the policy propagandists, mainstream media, so-called fact-checkers, so-called anti-hate campaign groups, and naturally, right at the bottom, the policy subjects. Ian's chart may not be the be-all and end-all of global governance, but it is by far the simplest, clearest org chart I have seen, about which he says, quotes, The Global Public-Private Partnership, GPPP, is a worldwide network of stakeholder capitalists and their partners. This collective of stakeholders, the capitalists and their partners, comprises global corporations including central banks, philanthropic foundations, multi-billionaire philanthropists, policy think tanks, governments and their agencies, non-governmental organisations, selected academic and scientific institutions, global charities, the labour unions and other chosen quotes thought leaders. The GPPP controls global finance of the world's economy. It sets world, national and local policy via global governance 
and then promotes those policies using the mainstream media corporations who are also partners within the GPPP. Often, those policies are devised by the think tanks before being adopted by governments who are also GPP partners. Government is the process of transforming GPPP global governance into hard policy legislation and law. Under our current model of Westphalian national sovereignty, the government of one nation cannot make legislation or law in another. However, through global governments, the GPPP create policy initiatives at the global level, which then cascade down to the people in every nation. This typically occurs via an intermediary policy distributor, such as the IMF or IPCC, and national government then enact the recommended policies. The policy trajectory is set internationally by an authorised definition of problems and their prescribed solutions. Once the GPPP enforce a consensus internationally, the policy framework is set. The GPP stakeholder partners then collaborate to ensure the desired policies are developed, implemented and enforced. This is the oft-quoted international rules-based system. In this way, the GPPP control many nations at once without having to resort to legislation. This has the added advantage of making any legal challenge to the decisions made by the most senior partners in the GPPP it is an authoritarian hierarchy, extremely difficult, end quote. As you might have spotted, this utterly inverts the idea that power should reside with the people as free agents, and instead is a clear cascade from policy makers through policy distributors to governments qua policy enforcers, at which point think Bernays' manufacturer consent. All that is left is for the policy propagandists to create, in Guy Debord's memorable title, a society, the spectacle, to tell us plebs what to think and what to do, and et voila, one minute, everyone disses masks. Next minute, it vilifies those who don't wear them. One minute, it claps for carers. The next, it applauds their sacking. Oh, frabjous day, kalu kalu. Many of the masses that I've found in conversations recently gaily allow themselves to be unwittingly led by the policy propagandists well along Hannah Arendt's five steps already. The above sketch is a simple example of how the world works on pretty much everything these days, from COVID, through greenism, through immigration, through LGBTism, and much, much more. So, finally, the outro. We've covered much land in our journey. We started with a sitrep viewing the current situation as a global coup by the self-styled elite. We examined some highly specific UK examples of tyrannical legislation that have been and are being enacted, if you didn't notice at the time, I hope you'll now recall that the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Bill became law in March 2021, enabling a whole range of state agents to break the law without consequence, and the GPPP was mentioned as promoting that. We then looked at how a large conglomeration of power always gathers more power to itself from whatever bodies are around, ranging from church to family in recent times. We looked at the challenge that even were we to have a democracy, there are no theoreticians who imagine it will be successful at the scale we are. The incentives are just all wrong. The media and corporates are in bed with, and in some cases own or buy the politicians and their votes, hat tipped to the Washington lobby. The stroke of the pen, the state can just steal yet more of your wealth and expand its reach. That is immediately no obvious way out governance ways. It will have to be a cultural reboot. Gladstone, one of the country's greatest prime ministers, warned about this, and it's worth repeating the last part of his warning. If the government takes into its hands that which the man ought to do for himself, it will inflict upon him greater mischiefs than all the benefits he will have received or all the advantages that would accrue from them. 
the essence of the whole thing is that the spirit of self-reliance, the spirit of true and genuine manly independence should be preserved in the minds of the people, in the minds of the masses of the people, in the mind of every member of the class. If he loses his self-denial, if he learns to live in a craven dependence upon wealthier people rather than upon himself, you may depend upon it that he incurs mischief for which no compensation can be made. And then finally we examined the origins of supranational governance and how it's intimately bound up with super wealthy insiders who have already rigged national laws to get councillors more exemptions than the average citizen. Now the likes of Soros, Gates, Rockefeller and friends with hundreds of billions seek to destroy our societies. And finally we wrapped up with an organogram elaboration of the global public-private partnership, such an anodyne name, compare with TPP and TIPP, which were derailed by Trump. Originally, I'd intended to cover the Rosie scenario by way of outro in much more depth, but much time has passed and you might all fall asleep if I continued with another half an hour that I'd scripted. But let me just touch on three points for cheer. Points being, grandmother's footsteps have ended, heroes, and the time for rebirth and renewal. Firstly, grandmother's footsteps have ended. These evil bastards have shown their colours. More people awaken every day. The resistance grows in proportion to their tyranny. Let us not imagine some super bright, super perfect psychos, as many in the resistance are wont to do. They've rushed this, they're botching this, and the excess of tyranny so early on is to play the last card, which they are playing just as Covid is turning mild. In the absence of a new variant, the masses want a new narrative. Putin? Aliens? Don't think climate will cut it. We shall see. But the truth for sure has power, and every day more truth leaks out, no matter how much they try and close the holes in the dam. Joe Rogan's interview with Robert Malone alone reached some 50 million people, which is getting on for 1% of the global population, a phenomenal statistic talking about a new media. Second reason for cheer, heroes. Back to ancient Greek times, a hero was a protector of society. Heroes always emerge in crises, and this crisis is no different. A plethora of heroes have emerged who previously led quiet lives. Along the rosy path, maybe at some time in the future, when we reboot, reform or recreate a centripetal local society, not a centrifugal globalist society, statues will be erected to these men. It is, of course, emblematic of our age of decay and dissolution due to the attack from the Death Star that statues of historic heroes are being torn down. Maybe it's all part of the Spenglerian cycle. A major civilization arises when great leaders, notably Elizabeth I, I mentioned before, and the great inspirer of many an expedition, Hakloit, to name but two, enable and inspire people to transcend the individual limits that they previously lived within. Equally, when a civilization is old and decaying, the bodies and statues need to be returned to Great Mother Earth and recycled once again. It was ever thus. But countless heroes have emerged who have spoken truth to power. I mentioned Joe Rogan who has single-handedly gathered more audience, about 11.1 million, I think, for the average episode, than any legacy media operator who are generally in the low 2 to 3 million at tops, and uses it for in-depth, long-form content, as opposed to the short soundbite, with the likes of Robert Malone, Dr Peter McCulloch. I mentioned Dr Mike Yaden as another hero. Another heroic doctor for me is Dr Pierre Corey, pulmonary and critical care specialist, co-developer of intensive care treatment protocols with the FLCCC, the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, leading ICU critical care doctors in the US. Corey has been particularly active in what he calls his latest Substack article, the Global Disinformation Campaign Against Ivermectin, which certainly is 
as he says, a crime against humanity. Another hero is Robert Kennedy Jr., who's produced a phenomenal book showing what an evil criminal Fauci is and how the whole so-called regulatory structure of pharma has been captured beyond belief. For example, the FDA receives 45% of its budget from pharma. The NIH has thousands of pharma patents and the CDC spends roughly $5 billion out of its $12 billion budget buying and distributing vaccines. So, quotes, it really is the front man. It is the biggest vaccine company in the world. That's the CDC, which you might have thought was the regulator. The metrics in the agencies about whether you get promoted or increased pay, most of them relate to how well you're promoting vaccine uptake. The most shocking thing for me about his book is how many times this playbook has been used before. There's a long history, says Kennedy, of fabricating pandemics by the agencies to save their existence as fatal infectious diseases almost died out in the US. For example, in 1976, flu, 2005, avian flu, swine flu were all complete fabrication. One person died. They spent $40 billion on vaccines. The Zika virus was another one let alone the catastrophe around the AIDS epidemic and what they did to ensure that deadly drugs were used, not to mention the death of dozens of minority group orphans in trials. It was sickening and even worse than removing puppies' vocal cords as you torture their eyes with sand insects, something the mainstream media managed to bury fairly effectively. It's sickening what satanic evil is capable of. On the hero side, however, RFK Jr.'s book gets 4.8 stars from 5 from 2,333 reviews on Amazon. Talking of lawyers, I hope Fulhamick gets his new Nuremberg trials. It may take some time, but the evidence is damning. Just needs to find a non-cucked court. Third one, reasons to be cheerful. A time for rebirth and renewal. Our house did have woodworm drop rot. The Death Star has been in construction for decades, and a monopolar world, untethered from any deep religious or moral anchor, has gone blind with avarice and greed. Well, this has all been told before in countless Old Testament tales that I forgot when I was a little kid at school, sitting on the floor in assembly. The story is as old as humanity, as is the fact that major changes of era are heralded by changes in technology, whether farming, Bronze Age, and in our case, we are still living in the initial adjustment centuries of industrial revolution, for example, built in obsolescence, pollution, using the world's resources, let alone communications tech, going back to McLuhan, let alone digital tech. So wrapping all this up, what can you do? For a start, I need to do it after reading through this. Just smile. Smiling lifts your heart and others' hearts. Too many dissidents swim in cesspits of gloom and despair. You can also laugh. This is the most effective medicine, as is satire, as we see with, for example, the YouTube channel Awaken with JP. They can't cope with it. They can't meme, they can't tell jokes, as in simple terms, they're acting like automata, possessed simply by a will to power and hubristic fantasies of creating utopia. Which, interestingly, in the context of globalism, has a fascinating etymology, literally meaning no place, from the Greek ou, not, and topos, place. I have no doubt that the Doctor Strange loves will fail. Naturally, how long it will take for us to triumph and them to fail, we do not yet know. But back to the civilization at the crossroads, it's not hard to find a good Agenda 2030 YouTube and see their direction of travel. It is up to us to orientate all of ourselves in the more human direction. And wrapping up with a final few quotes, back to my theme of history and heroes, let me share with you the advice of two heroes who walked very tough roads. In communist Czechoslovakia, the non-violent Velvet Revolution, according to Havel, depended not so much upon political reform, 
but upon the existence of growing numbers of quotes, individuals who were willing to live within the truth, even when things were at their worst. They could equally have been poets, painters, musicians, or simply ordinary citizens who were able to maintain their human dignity. One thing, however, seems clear. The attempt at political reform was not the cause of society's reawakening, but rather the final outcome of that reawakening. That's from the power of the powerless. And off the top of my head, another key element of the Czechoslovak revolution was the plastic people of the universe who just wanted to play their music. And they held out and went to court. And their example led many to the tipping point. And just on tipping points, as I mentioned in an earlier podcast, last year the city was pretty much dead in August. But then suddenly by the end of September it's full again. So even if things are looking challenging, we might be very close to a tipping point. Finally, from Ericsson and Mahoney in The Soldier's Edition Reader, talking about his essay, Live Not by Liars. On the day Solzhenitsyn was arrested, February 12, 1974, he released the text of Live Not by Liars. The next day he was exiled to the West, where he received a hero's welcome. Solzhenitsyn equates lies with ideology. The illusion that human nature and society can be reshaped to predetermined specifications. And his last word, before leaving his homeland, urges Soviet citizens and individuals to refrain from cooperating with the regime's liars. Even the most timid can take this least demanding step towards spiritual independence. If many march together on this path of passive resistance, the whole inhuman system will tatter and collapse. To wrap up, a quote from Live Not By Liars. Quotes. And therein we find, neglected by us, the simplest the most accessible key to our liberation, a personal non-participation in lies. Even if all is covered by lies, even if all is under their rule, let us resist in the smallest way. Let their rule hold not through me.